The title for our study this morning is an expression straight from the Bible, superfluity of naughtiness. Don't you love the Bible's wording? Superfluity of naughtiness. This spring I've been taking a Master's Gardener's course, so before we look at our scripture passage together, I want to ask an agricultural question. Which part of the following do you think causes the greatest loss of crops worldwide? Plant disease? Insects and nematodes, weeds, or animal pests such as rodents, deer, uh, birds? Which of these do you think is the correct answer? Well, we'll look at the answer later in our study this morning, but before we open God's Word, let's pray. Dear Lord, um, help us to be able to concentrate on your Word, to understand it and apply it in our hearts. I pray that you'll be right here, helping me, sending your Holy Spirit in Christ's name, amen. Though it encompasses only two verses, our passage today is one of the most important passages in the book of James, because it tells us how to be saved. It also deals the way in which many will be lost. Let's look at it together. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, I like the King James Version choice of words, superfluity of naughtiness. We teach our children not to be naughty. But it is not only our children that are naughty, adults are often naughty too. And it's not just children who should stop being naughty. According to our text, the Bible says adults need to lay naughtiness aside as well. Our world, world is filled with adult naughtiness. There are so-called adult beverages adult books and magazines, adult movies, but sin is sin at any age. God doesn't have a strict Ten Commandments for children and a permissive uh, commandment for adults. Whether we are adults or children, we are to lay aside all filthiness in superfluity of naughtiness. However, the expression of superfluity of naughtiness is hard for most of us to understand. Perhaps the ESV is most clear, translating the Greek word rampant wickedness. Some sins are common and widely accepted in society. Though society regards popular sins as harmless, the Bible tells us to lay all such evil aside. In its place we receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We shouldn't miss the fact that how we respond to this passage will determine whether we are saved or lost. From these two verses we can learn with biblical certainty whether we're saved or lost. We need to pay attention to these verses. Our soul's salvation depends on it. It's not enough for us to hear God's word. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. What a thought is in this verse. We are so deceptive that we deceive ourselves. The fact is, the liar we're most apt to believe, to be honest, is ourselves. The lie we are most apt to accept as truth is the lie we tell ourselves. And the we, flattery we, uh, that exposes us to the greatest danger is the flattery we give ourselves. We can divide these two verses into three parts. Lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness that surrounds us. Two, meekly receive the implanted word. And three, don't just talk about the word. Don't just think about the word. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. The James that wrote this book is an older stepbrother of Jesus. James was simply echoing what his stepmother Mary had said to the servants at the wedding of Cana. 
In these two verses, God has given us practical and important instruction on Christian living. James likens the word of God to seed that must be planted into properly prepared soil and then carefully tended. Just as there must be preparation before planting a garden, there's a necessary preparation to successfully sow God's seed of his word. And this essential preparation involves laying aside certain thoughts and actions. The black walnut tree in Eric and Rachel's front yard has helped me understand this passage better. Some of you may recall that black walnut trees contain a natural plant poison called juglone. Juglone kills some plants and inhibits the growth of others. Juglone not only poisons plants, but it's poisonous to horses, ponies, and may be lethal to dogs. This powerful poison is present in every part of the black walnut tree. Juglone is in the black walnut tree bark. It's in the, jack, the, in the black walnut wood, its leaves, but its highest concentration is in the roots. Even when a black walnut tree is cut down, the soil remains poisoned for years. When plants that are sensitive to juglone are exposed to it, the plants turn yellow, they wilt, the plant's grow is, growth is stunted, and the plant will eventually die. You have to lay aside, remove the black walnut tree and its roots before you can successfully grow asparagus, apples, cabbage, or potatoes in its vicinity. The black walnut illustrates impurity in the life. Because the impurity poisons the seed of the word, impurity must be removed from the life. We live in a society of rampant wickedness. The Greek word translated filthiness has a broad meaning that includes moral impurity rampant in our society. Wherever you turn, there's something immoral that's beckoning. The media glorifies moral failures all around us. Music, movies, literature, news, advertisements are designed to appeal to our carnal nature in immoral ways. Much that is immoral is now accepted as normal behavior. Well over 80% of young people openly live together before marriage. But James makes his appeal to lay aside such filthiness and rampant wickedness for our soul's sake. Paul's warning that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, has occurred in front of our eyes. And Christians, young and old, are not immune from these corrupting influences that surround us. These poisonous influences impact Christian families and children, causing suffering, heartache, abusive and fractured homes. And it is only by the Bible that churches can resist these forces. This past week, after years of contentious debate, a special meeting of the Worldwide United Methodists was held to determine whether or not the church would allow sexual perverts to be ordained as ministers and whether Methodist ministers could officiate at so-called marriages between individuals of the same gender. There were raucous demonstrations by those excusing and promoting that which the Bible calls an abomination. The Bible is unambiguously clear. Immorality is poisonous to Christian life. And this passage sets us before us life and death. To choose sinful thoughts and behavior, how much approved by the world is to forego eternal life and to choose eternal death. 
I like the Jerusalem Bible's translation of this verse. Do away with all impurities and remnants of evil. Like noxious weeds, all impurities must be pulled out by the roots and not a trace be allowed to remain. The text continues. Humbly welcome the word which has been planted in you and can save your soul. Just as churches must decide who they will welcome into church fellowship, individuals must determine what they are going to welcome into their minds, into their lives, into their homes. When we welcome impurity, we banish God's word. When we welcome God's word, we banish impurity. And if we would see God, we must be pure because Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. These things must be laid aside. Ministers of the gospel, from sketches from the life of Paul, page 322. Ministers of the gospel whose character are otherwise almost faultless frequently do great harm by allowing their forbearance toward the erring to degenerate into toleration of their sins and even participation with them. In this easygoing way, they excuse and palliate that which the word of God condemns. And after a time, they become so blinded as even to commend the very ones whom God commands them to reprove. The only safeguard against these these dangers is to add to patience godliness, to reverence God, his character and his law, and to keep his fear ever before the mind. By communion with God through prayer and the reading of his word, we should cultivate such a sense of the holiness of his character that we shall regard sin as he regards it. We should spend a moment looking at the word the Bible uses to describe moral impurity, filthiness. I had an employee who had grown up in the world and received little biblical instruction. She became a Christian later in her teen years and told me even before she learned the Bible, she wouldn't participate in some of the activities of her teenage friends because it made her feel, in her words, dirty. There's a reason that certain thoughts, certain jokes are called dirty. Gross immorality is frequently attacked, attached to filth. Human feces has become a major problem in San Francisco. Last summer, a large medical convention backed out of choosing the city to host its event, citing dirty streets filled with needles, trash, and human feces and urine. The Bible teaches strict cleanliness. It is interesting to note that after the early church departed from the teachings of the Bible and looked away from God to the Pope, God's teaching was often forgotten. St. Francis of Assisi considered an unwashed body, however smelly, a badge of piety. Pope Innocent IV considered daily bathing to be sinful. In, In fact, in 1250, he passed sentence against Emperor Frederick II, condemning him as a heathen. Why? The first accusation on his list was the emperor bathed daily. The longest reigning monarch in European history was Louis XIV of France. Louis the Great, builder of the world's largest royal domain, the 2014-acre Versailles Palace. The palace contains 721,206 square feet of floor space, which I would not want to uh, mop. Interestingly, historians debate whether Louis XIV had more than three baths in his life. The king's personal physician, Guy Crescent Fagan, wrote, the king was never pleased to become accustomed to bathing in his chamber. Nobility and royalty would attempt to hide their human stench behind a perfumed, sweet-smelling garment. 
Louis XIV changed his clothes twice a day. But even this was not entirely successful. Speaking of Louis XIV, a Russian ambassador to his court wrote, his majesty stunk like a wild animal. <laughs> All the perfumed royal robes could not hide the stench of filthiness. And God has not given his word as a cloak that Christians can use to hide their sins, but as cleansing water to wash them. The filthiness, however, that's talked about is broader than moral impurity. It includes advantaging ourselves to the disadvantage of others. And that is selfishness and covers all of our cherished sins. Every sin is filthy and defiling and can and must be, through the grace of Jesus, put away. The Greek word translated lay aside may be translated put off, cast off, cast away. One could easily miss the strength of this word. But God included this word in a story to help us better understand it. When the Jews became enraged at Stephen's word, the Bible tells us, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Cast him out in Acts is the same Greek word translated lay aside in James. When we lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness, we cast it out of our lives. The same Greek word is used by Paul in Hebrews. Let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. Though the world's uh, filth will cling to us, we must not cling to it, but lay it aside by casting it away. But we must consider, uh, continue our study of this passage. God's word does not simply clean us up by removing our sin. It fills us by giving us Christ's righteousness. We receive the implanted word. In our master's gardener class, we are learning how to successfully plant. Plants are tender and easily damaged. The Greek word here translated meekness actually means gentleness. The word implanted in our lives is a tender plant that we must treat gently, not with rushness and harsh conditions of pride and self-importance. The soil of the heart must be broken open in repentance and watered with the tears of contrition. Review in Herald 425, 1893, a mere casual faith in the word is not enough. It must be received into the heart and grafted in the very character. The word character means our habitual thoughts and feelings which produce our actions. The word of God is not engrafted until its instruction is part of my habitual thoughts and my habitual actions. We don't form habits in a moment. This takes repetition and practice over time. And if I have habits of thought and feelings that are not in harmony with God's word, then the word of God is not engrafted in my thought and my faith is a mere casual faith not a saving faith in the Word of God. This is not something that is optional. This is salvational. As I've been meditating on this verse this week, I've come under great conviction. The problem, you see, is not primarily my actions. It is my habitual thoughts and feelings which cause my actions. God's Word is not God's filter for my actions. It is the purification of the spring that produces the actions. I have a selfish desire before I have a selfish deed. I have an unloving thought before I do an unloving deed. I have an impatient thought before I do an impatient deed. And I have an impure thought before I commit an impure action. The habitual sinful thought reveals that God is not, his word is not implanted in my heart. 
James in the New Testament is simply repeating what Isaiah said in the Old Testament. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to God for he will abundantly pardon. Receiving is turning from sin and returning to God in his word. Without this we will be habitually intemperate, impatient, dishonest, impure, Sabbath-breaking, covetous, immodest. We can't help it. When I return to my sins instead of returning to my Savior, I'm choosing death in place of life. Well, let's move to the second verse of our passage. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let's look at this more closely. This verse divides all Christians into three distinct groups. The first is implied, though not specifically mentioned in the text, non-hearers. This does not refer to those who have no opportunity to hear, but to those who cannot hear because they will not hear. Those who will not hear deprive themselves of great blessing. For Jesus said, blessed are your ears, for they hear. Non-hearers may be non-hearers because they don't want to hear the Bible. They refuse to hear the Bible or reject what the Bible, uh, reject the truth they hear from the Bible. When King Ahaziah's son, uh, King Ahaziah, Ahab's son, fell through a latticed window and was severely injured, he didn't seek God's word. Instead, he sought counsel from Beelzebub, the fly god of Ekron. When his messengers were intercepted by Elijah, he sought to kill Elijah in a defiant but futile attempt to keep from hearing Elijah's message. Though Elijah did deliver his message, Ahaz, Ahaziah was not benefited by it, for no one is so deaf as the one who will not hear. We recall the story of Stephen and how the Jews refused to hear his defense. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They refused to hear. And God's word tells us that the one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. But the group of non-hearers is also composed of another group, a far larger group, those who neglect to hear. They don't refuse to hear, they just don't go to hear. It's a low in their priorities and interests, and so they don't take advantage of the gospel that's within their reach. Perhaps they think they know it already, don't need to hear. These are willingly ignorant. For whatever reason, they don't study their Bible consistently morning and evening. They don't consistently study the spirit of prophecy. But the Bible is not a take it or leave it book. Our attention to God's word is determining whether we will be inside or outside the New Jerusalem. Our eternal destiny hinges on whether or not we seek the Lord while he may be found. If light and truth is within our reach, we're told, and we neglect to improve the privilege of hearing and seeing, seeing it, we virtually reject it. We are choosing darkness rather than light. Great Controversy 597. But James doesn't focus his attention on this group. There's no reason to. There's nothing he, can, uh, he says that can help them. They're not listening or they won't listen. So James focuses on another group. He calls them hearers. These are active in the church and may read their Bible every day, but these are self-deceived hearers. They compare themselves with those who neglect or refuse to listen and feel righteous by comparison. Is this group of self-deceived hearers any better, better than the non-hearers? No, they may actually be worse off. So this is the group James seeks to benefit. A self-deceived hearer is a Laodicean. Though they're not doers of the word, Laodiceans congratulate themselves on being hearers of the word. This hearing makes them feel that they are rich, increased with goods, needing nothing. They're self-deceived and do not know that they are really wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. 
So they come to you, Ezekiel was told by God. Uh, They come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. And this isn't just talking about monetary gain. They are not wholehearted in their devotion to God. They go through outward forms, but nothing in their worship or Bible study is changing their hearts. These self-deceived hearers are often sayers. They may talk the talk, though they fail to walk the walk. They're not like the Apostle Paul who said, but I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means, after I've preached others, I myself should be rejected. This is the story with the last king of Israel, Zedekiah. The sad story is told by Jeremiah. Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar. The city appeared about to fall. Jeremiah was in dungeon, and in this crisis, Zedekiah secretly sought his counsel. He brought Jeremiah from the dungeon and asked the prophet, is there any word from the Lord? Though Jeremiah faithfully delivered God's message, Zedekiah did nothing. God's word was not the word he wanted to hear. These hearers hear only what they want to hear. And they interpret the Bible to say what they want it to say. This hearer goes to the Bible and from its instruction picks and chooses as if the Bible were some heavenly smorgasbord. The Roman governor Felix was another self-deceived hearer. The Bible says he would often listen to Paul. His listening was an, had an ulterior motive. He was hoping to gain money from Paul. Whenever we go to Scripture with an improper ulterior motive, we become self-deceived hearers. Like Felix, like Judas, looking to God's word as a way to gain worldly success, get ahead in life, or have honor. Jesus gave many parables about self-deceived hearers. In the Sermon on the Mount, he told the story of the foolish builder. In the Sermon by the Sea, he told the parable of the sower. And at the close of his ministry in the temple, Jesus gave the parable of the vineyard owner's two sons. The word of God is powerful. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Why is that which called the universe into existence, healed the sick and resurrected the dead, powerless to change these hearers' lives? There are only three reasons, and Christ details these reasons in his parable of the sower. Self-deceived hearers may be unprepared for what they hear. They're wayside hearers. The seeds of God's word scattered on a hard heart like seeds cast on an unplowed ground cannot germinate. This seed cannot be implanted and embedded in the heart, and over time, the seed itself loses its regenerating power. For it is able to generate neither root nor leaf, and without root or leaf, that seed can produce no fruit. Thus, for the self-deceived, the Bible they hear is never engrafted into their lives and brings no change to their lives. Jesus likened the second group of self-deceived hearers to superficial listeners and superficial tenders. Their soil had no depth of earth. These are the rocky ground hearers. The word of God may bring changes into the life of the superficial listener, but it's only temporary. They accept Christ as a means to improve their lives. Just as the Jews looked for a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans, these come to to Christ for the benefits they expect to receive. They turn to Christ as an escape from the present difficulties of life. These follow Jesus for the temporal loaves and the fishes. Such cannot endure the scorching sun of rejection. 
mockery, persecution, misunderstanding, and the loss of all things earthly. And when they find that there's a cross to bear in following the Savior, they turn from the cross. And in turning from the cross, they turn from their Savior. And the last group of self-deceived hearers are the hearers who live for the present and fail to properly plan for eternity. The weeds of the world choke out the seed of the word. They value their present mortal life more than their future immortal life. The things of time eclipse the things of eternity. Winning heaven and shunning hell is not the focus of their lives. Their thoughts may wander far away during a sermon. The business of the present is the great business of their life. And the Bible seeds growing in their lives are untended and are choked out by the weeds. And that brings us to the question that started our study. Which of the following do you think causes the greatest loss of crops worldwide? Plant seeds, plant disease, insects and nematodes, weeds, or animal pests? It's weeds. Worldwide, they reduce the wheat and corn yield by 50 to 52%. This has been true since Bible times. Jesus told the story of an enemy who really wanted to bring the greatest damage to another crop. What did he do? He planted weeds. All who refused to tend the gentle plants and instead of uprooting the weeds in their characters cherish them are self-deceived hearers. All three groups of self-deceived hearers share the unconcern of carnal security. This is assisted by a very popular false gospel which seems to exalt Jesus on the cross but actually tells a lie by only partially telling the truth. This is explained in one of the very longest sentences in the spirit of prophecy. An 81-word sentence. Review and Herald, 10, 11, 18, 87. There are many who view themselves as defective in character when they look at, into God's moral mirror, his law. Is this good? Yes. Should we see our, our defects? Yes. But they have heard so much of all you have to do is believe, only believe that Jesus has done it all and you have nothing to do in the matter. That after venturing to look into the mirror, they straightway go from it retaining all their defects with the words on their lips. They go, for, excuse me, they straightway go from it, retra- retaining all their defects with the words on their lips. Jesus has done it all. Has Jesus done it all? Yes, but not that cannot help those who refuse or neglect what he's done. As Paul asks, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? But if that is a false gospel, a perverted gospel, what is the true gospel? As we come, the quotation continues, as we come to feel our utter reliance upon Christ for salvation, as are we to fold our hands and say, I have nothing to do, I'm saved, Jesus has done it all? Has Jesus given us something to do? Has he invited us today to go to work for him in his vineyard? Thank God he has given me something to do for him. He invites me to be a labor together with him. Are we to fold our hands and say, I have nothing to do, I'm saved, Jesus has done it all? No. It continues, we are to put forth every energy that we may become partakers of the divine nature. A well-kept garden does not happen by chance or accident. It testifies to great but well-directed and ongoing effort and expense. Continuously, weeds must be removed and plants tended. The garden of the heart is not somehow different. 
The weeds of our character testify to our casual faith, our lack of diligence in Bible study and prayer, our lack of interest in others. But back to our quote. We are to be continually watching, waiting, praying, and working. That's tending the garden of my heart. But don't miss the next sentence. But do all that we may, we cannot pay a ransom for our souls. Our diligence is necessary, but it is not meritous. We can do nothing to originate faith, for faith is the gift of God. Neither can we perfect it, for Christ is the finisher of our faith. It is all of Christ. All the longing after a better life is from Christ and is an evidence that he is drawing you to himself and that you are responding to his drawing power. And this brings us to James' last category of Christian, the hearers and doers of the word. We are inundated with advertisements and the many claims that advertisers make for their products. Probably most of us here have grown cynical and suspicious about advertisers and their claims. Most of us want to see results before we accept claims. And that's true of the claims of the Bible, the claims of Christianity. That's what the world wants to see. Not your claims, but your life. It is the doers that prove the truth of the claims of the Bible. It is the doers of the word alone that can be truly effective soul winners. I've been to many classes on soul winning. I've studied books on how to answer objections. But our passage this morning provides the real secret of soul winning. A secret that is far more effective than any well-crafted Bible study. A doer of the word. 3T522, God will not excuse you for not taking up the cross and practicing self-denial in doing good to others with unselfish motives. If you will take the trouble to make the self-denial required of Christians, you may, by the grace of God, be qualified to win souls to Christ. That's what I want, that qualification. And how does this happen? The human countenance itself is a mirror of the soul read by others and having a telling influence upon them for good or evil. God has made our face a canvas for him to paint a picture of himself. And when we surrender truly successful, it can be seen in our faces and heard in the tones of our voices. Brothers and sisters, the roots of grace may not be seen, but the flower of grace cannot be hidden by its bloom on our faces. I'm so convicted by the life of Paul. Paul carried with him through his life on earth the very atmosphere of heaven. All who associated, we're, I'm reading here from sketches from the life of Paul, all who associated with him felt the influence of his connection with Christ and companionship with angels. Herein, here lies the power of the truth. Would you read that with me? Here lies the power of the truth. The unstudied, unconscious influence of a holy life is the most convincing sermon that can be given in favor of Christianity. Argument, even when unanswerable, may provoke only opposition, but a godly example has a power which it is impossible wholly to resist. James has given us Paul's secret. Paul laid aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Those plants that like black walnuts uh, contain a poison that would have destroyed the seeds of the word in his life with meekness. He received the implanted word that saved his soul and he became a persevering and consistent doer of the word. And that's my heart's desire this morning. 
What I do today and this next week will show if I am a doer of the word or just another sayer of the word, a self-deceived here without a saving witness for Jesus, who's, um, one who spurned heaven when it was within my reach and will be lost at last. As the light from God's word has penetrated my mind this week, I've seen in a new and a deeper way that I've been cherishing unsightly fruit, destroying weeds, um, unsightly fruit that were destroying weeds in the garden of my heart. But I'm not discouraged. My, my garden need not stay unsightly another day. Jesus, the master gardener, has an offer that's available today. He has a plan for my garden to be fruitful and beautiful. The one who made the Garden of Eden can make a garden out of my life. I want to answer that call and surrender fully to him for he will implant new seeds in my heart. Will you join me in that surrender?